Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Folks, if you're new to Risk, you might not know Ray Christian yet. If you are a Risk listener, you know that Ray is one of our very, very favorite Risk storytellers. For years, I've been telling people about What's Ray Saying, Ray's own podcast. And if you haven't heard it lately, wow, is it 
new and improved. It's bigger and better than ever. Ray is not just a storyteller. He's a historian and a father. Well, if you've got the time, he could fill you in on everything he's been called. But first and foremost, Ray is a black veteran from the rural South who finds himself floating between life in academia, public speaking, storytelling, parenting, and tending to the goats in his backyard. And he has got stories, really beautiful remarkable stories, stories that make you think a little differently about the world. In each episode of What's Ray Saying, Ray shares his love of cultural history, personal narrative, and social justice by weaving sound-rich personal narratives, Black American history, travel logs, and Ray's unique daily life that explores and connects the past and the present from a one-of-a-kind perspective. Think of Ray as your favorite uncle, a voice you can trust, filled with wise talk and scars and scratches who makes you feel comfortable enough to listen to things that aren't always that easy to hear. And don't worry, you'll meet the goats too. Now, we are so happy to be featuring a whole episode of What's Ray Saying right here in our feed today. A perfect example of just how special What's Ray Saying is. After getting a response from a 30-year-old letter, Ray explores a legacy of correspondence from his personal experience writing for illiterate parents and soldiers to the fascinating role male has played in black military history. So without further ado, I give you Ray Christian and an episode of What's Ray Saying that he calls Letters. I can't remember the last time I went to the mailbox and found a handwritten letter. And for the life of me, I can't remember when I've sat down to write one either. Over the years, my writing in general has been limited to college papers and emails. But now, even email has been saturated with junk mail. My mailbox and inbox are filled with solicitations, but rarely anything of a personal nature. But recently, I got a different kind of email. A message I've never received in any kind of format. It said, I don't know if this is the Raymond Christian that I've been looking for, but I've been trying to find you. Then the sender gave a few other details. He said he saw me performing stories online and then asked if I had been in the army. My name is Justin, and I sent you a letter when I was nine years old. As soon as I read that line, I was transported to 1991. I could visualize the font, the print of the letter, a child's handwriting. I could almost remember every word. And it brought me back to a time when everything was life or death. The message blew me away. It blew me away. Now, who is this postman? Well, I'm not defined with a singular salutation, 
Some may call me a ghetto kid or a southern black gentleman, a retired army paratrooper or a doctor of education, a teller of stories, a student of the past, or the source of all black knowledge, a voice ready to explore and talk with you about it all. From PRX, I'm Ray Christian, and this is What's Ray Saying? What's Ray Saying? In this episode, from letters for family members to letters for the armed forces, I'm going to open up my mailbox. I started learning to read and write before I began first grade at about five years old. I wrote short notes in big letters. I wrote in big letters because I believed that if your letters were big, the easier it would be for people to read them. I wrote letters to my teacher, my mama, and my sister Janice. My mama couldn't read or write, so I became her personal secretary, bringing her news from around the country and sharing her observations with everyone else. I would also do this for other family and neighbors that were illiterate, like my stepdaddy and church friends. And it was just as interesting to dive into a book as it was to interpret the outside world for my mama with letters that she got. Then came the work of writing letters for my mama. I had to up my game because I wasn't particularly studious in school when it came to grammar and penmanship. The other complication was me trying to interpret what my mama was wanting to say with the vocabulary I had and my ability to spell it. Like my mama might have said, tell my sister we got plenty of salt herns and she can come get them now. The word was herring. But we didn't talk like that. And Hearns doesn't mean anything written like H-E-R-N-S. Now I got to figure out, do my aunt and my cousins know what herring are? Then I had to figure out how the hell I was going to spell that. I learned to write for the eyes of other people. I learned the more words you have in your vocabulary, the more things you could say. The more things you could describe, the more you could express yourself, and the better you could understand what other people were saying. And I learned that receiving a letter was just as impactful as writing it. Sometimes I played Cyrano de Bergerac, writing Can I Be Your Boyfriend letters for a couple of dudes in high school who I would say were not that proficient at reading and writing, but could easily beat your ass if you said you wrote a letter for them. And when I was in basic training in the Army, I was also an unofficial secretary for the men in my unit, someone the men came to for letter writing. Letters sent back home to mamas, siblings, lots of sweet nothings to sweethearts all across the U.S. Soldiers would ask me why I was giggling, and I'd say, I wrote down that you're an angel that's flying too close to the ground and I can't wait to capture you. You wrote that shit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Write more like that. I had been writing letters in all my posts in the U.S. Army for about 12 years, and at the age of 30, I got assigned to be a part of the biggest land operation since World War II. And an explosive development near the Persian Gulf. 
Word that Iraq has invaded neighboring state of Kuwait with fighting reported along the border. The residents say that they were awakened by machine gun fire and heavy uh, artillery. Is happening outside. Um, the skies over Baghdad have been illuminated. We're seeing bright flashes going off all over the sky. Iraq invaded Kuwait. I found myself in the desert. Now, I'd seen a landscape similar to this during my training in the Yakima Desert in Washington State. But this was different. Where Yakima was filled with brushy, soft, rolling hills, the Al-Hajar Desert in Iraq was rocky, flat, like Mars or the moon, I imagine. The first thing I learned about the desert is everything revolves around water. So much of our training revolved around water and going to the bathroom. The second thing I learned about the desert was the perspective shift. Here in the mountains where I live now, you're living in your own world. With all the trees, streams, forestry, everything feels like it's all right in front of me. There could be a ton of people not a mile away and you wouldn't even know it. I feel isolated in a totally different kind of way. When you're in the desert, you can see thousands of things at once, especially at night. When the stars seem to touch the land, it's like a kaleidoscope. And I started to see things at a greater distance. I saw magnitude on a different scale, including the reach of the armed forces. At night, it might be the stars, but during the day, Standing on top of an armored vehicle, looking to my left and to my right, forward, all across the horizon, nothing but armored vehicles as far as you could see. During the first Gulf War and the weeks leading up to our ground assault, American forces have been continuously bombing Iraqi positions, aiming to push Iraqi forces out of Kuwait. Now, active combat is not always taking place at the same time in the same intensity across an entire sector. There are times with intense action, moderate action, or no activity at all. That inactivity can be dangerous, like when being fatigued catches up with you and the fog of war can settle in. Or it can be like any other downtime in life, resting, leisure, or catching up with correspondence. That's why mail calls were always exciting, and the military makes a big damn effort to get it to us. Sometimes way over the top. I've gotten mail in a damn muddy-ass foxhole on a demilitarized zone in Korea. Small boats linking up with submarines out at sea. Planes landing on aircraft carriers. And they've got all kinds of networks and various routes that they take, you know, to get that mail to you. Even if... It was pretty damn hard to locate the soldiers. There were units like the 6888 Central Postal Directory Battalion, led by Major Charity Adams, the only predominantly black female battalion sent overseas during World War II. Their motto was, no male, low morale. The unit sorted a backlog of more than three billion pieces of mail and packages. Some had been mailed up to three years prior. And it's all for morale, giving that feeling, a connection with back home for men to fight on. 
As I mentioned earlier, I would be my unit's letter writer a couple of times a month. These same soldiers finding all kinds of ways to act without stating the obvious. Saying their hand hurt, their fingers were all messed up, I don't have my glasses. I wouldn't quiz them on it, because I understood. Other guys wouldn't have gotten it because they didn't have illiterate parents. Illiteracy didn't stop soldiers from enlistment, and it didn't stop some black soldiers from excelling. The United States Military Academy at West Point had only three black American cadets in its first 133 years of existence. One of those cadets, Charles Young, served as an officer with the famed Buffalo Soldiers of the 9th and 10th Cavalry. One of his fellow soldiers and mentee was a young sergeant. An army legend has it that this young sergeant was illiterate, but showed himself to be an exceptional learner and leader. That was Benjamin O. Davis, the first black general in the United States Army. He served in both World War I and World War II. His son, Benjamin O. Davis Jr., became the commander of the Tuskegee Airmen in World War II and the first black four-star general in the United States Air Force. And for those that would ghostwrite letters for other soldiers, well, there's an illustrious tradition there too. Alex Haley, author of Roots, served in the United States Coast Guard. He emerged as a prolific and gifted writer who soon began to get the attention of his commanders after writing letters for his shipmates. Something about water. I learned, actually learned to write at sea when I was in the U.S. Coast Guard. I was on ships and uh, I was a cook. The only time I had was at night because I cooked all day. Alex Haley rose to become the Coast Guard's first journalist. While I'm not on Alex Haley's level, he's on my list of people that I have a shared experience with, former enlisted men who had a non-military career after retirement. I spent some time writing for others, but believe me, I wrote to everyone I had an address for. In my early years in the Army, I wrote home at least once a week. I'd always keep it simple, and sometimes I'd draw pictures in my letters. I'd draw house, parachute. I'd use plain language. Instead of saying something like, it looks like I'm being reassigned and my unit's going to deploy probably in about four or five months, if I wrote to my mama, I'd say something like, the Army is sending me to a new place, and I'd describe the environment. You know, Mama, it's still cold, but the mountains are so full of many flowers and all kinds of colors. I've been here for many months now. i actually seen a pheasant running down the road. The people are okay. I love the food. Things are looking up. Talk to you later. My mama was really the person I wrote to the most, knowing my letters would be read to her by either my sisters or one of her friends from church. And I'd also get unsolicited mail, sometimes more than I'd want, especially during the war. From patriotic junk mail from gas and tech corporations telling us soldiers what a good job we were doing, to hysterical people telling me I should die for invading another country. It was during this time that I received the first of two letters 
I wasn't expecting. A sergeant in charge called me to come in and told me to have a seat. I see some posted note with Staff Sergeant Christian attached to a letter. The sergeant just leaves and shuts the door. And as soon as my eyes hit my mother's name, I ain't need to read the rest of it. My mama was gone. I was just struck stupid, dumbfounded, shocked, heart attack all at once. I've been on the delivery side of this news many times. Handing a soldier the worst kind of letter from home, it comes as part of the culture. But when it happens to you, it ain't about no history or culture. It's just a punch in the gut. I remember reading obituaries to my mother and her having me reread them over and over again as she reflected on the details. And I remember reading letters to my mother informing her that a relative had died. It was painful with an awful anticipation of my mother's wailing of grief for a relative or friend who had passed away at some point in the last month. I read more than a dozen letters like that, not knowing how my mother would respond or who these people were or how they were connected. And now for me, that connection with home was lost forever. It was around the time of this news where I found myself facing combat on a scale I hadn't yet experienced. And then came another letter I wasn't expecting, but needed to read. To any soldier was a nationwide letter-writing campaign in support of the U.S. military deployed during the first Gulf War, Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Out of the thousands of letters that my unit received from the To Any Soldier program and the hundreds I personally looked over, I came across a letter from a nine-year-old named Justin. He sounded so much like myself. It reminded me of being that age and writing letters. Not just that. He was telling me what he liked and went on about his pets, the birds his family had, and what he was doing in school. I was intrigued by the kid, and I felt I may not have another opportunity to send a response. So, in the midst of all this activity of getting ready to deploy, I decided to write. I was sitting there in a tent, wind was blowing, people were yelling, let's get ready, let's get your shit ready to move out. And I said, hold on a second, man, let me write this letter. In the midst of all this chaos, I wrote a response to this little boy. The way I wrote this letter was done in the same way I wrote to my mama, knowing that someone else was going to read that letter. I didn't want to talk about politics, and I didn't want to talk about combat. I remember that the way I talked about the war was really short, but I put in some details to verify that yes, I was here in the desert. I even put some dribbles of sand in the letter on purpose. Eventually, my unit received the final orders to advance. We were on the move towards our first ground combat objective. This was the last letter I wrote before we deployed. And I wondered if it would be the last letter I would ever write.
what's racing. Just as the Russia deployment comes, so do the long lulls of waiting and waiting and waiting. It's in this type of inactivity where you fail to see things that are there and you see things that are not. When that perspective in the desert gets tricky. One night on guard duty with another soldier, and from a distance of nearly a hundred miles, we watched the cluster bombs striking positions. They looked like stars dancing on the horizon as they exploded, sparkling in the distance. The flatness of the desert made them stand out like big giants. I looked at the other guy and said, It looks like a sort of beauty. About 15 minutes later, a message came in saying, Another 67 Tomahawk missiles have been launched. This is the end of Operation Desert Shield and the beginning of Operation Desert Storm. All unit commanders, take your orders. And we started moving in. You see the results of that beauty. Iraqi soldiers dead and wounded. Many badly injured from bombs, some from vehicle accidents, burns and shrapnel wounds, traumatized, some stared in space, others cried. I've never seen that many dead, wounded, sick people. Never. There's no getting used to that. What I can only tell you is what I saw within my eyesight. Like how all the prisoners we checked had intestinal worms. During moments like this, with an enemy soldier so up close and personal, you'd have these short periods of empathy. But there were ways to interrupt that compassion and come back to being trained in the military. Like when some Iraqi soldiers in a sniper position would start taking shots at us. And when that would happen, we would neutralize it. Neutralize our empathy and neutralize our enemy. Eventually, this led to a tactical pause where we awaited further orders. No action. Nothing was happening. A respite. We were tired, loopy, and standing in an enemy position. It's in these long, unfocused times where the most dangerous decisions happen. Like going to the bathroom. I felt like I needed a moment to myself to literally walk away from the war. So I decided to do two things a soldier never does at war in the desert. I left my command to relieve myself, put my weapon down, and walked away from it. This was something we were trained never to do, going against all my instinct. Then I noticed the ground in front of me shaking, moving. And before I could even react, out jumped three Iraqi soldiers covered by burlap bags with their guns pointed right at me. I knew I was going to die. How, with all my training, could I have been so stupid as to put myself in a position to die like this? But then, instead of hearing the blast from a gun's barrel or some instructions from my captors, I watched these men put their weapons down and start grabbing at my feet. They cried out even though I didn't know exactly what they were saying but I did understand what they were trying to communicate. 
It was a surrender. Thing is, if I were one of those Iraqi soldiers and I saw an American soldier walking up to me with no weapon, I would have shot him. And if I had my weapon that day and in that moment of those soldiers scaring me like that, I would have killed them. Instead, I led them back towards the rear to be processed. We all survived that day. In the midst of combat action, I think about all those piles and piles and piles of mail generations of soldiers received. The work that people in the military like myself and Alex Haley did to write on behalf of our comrades who couldn't write the words themselves to reach back home. Who's getting married? Am I going to get that $5? What's the weather like? All that effort for the obsessive need to be thought of, to be remembered. A constant reminder, I'm still here. It's nice to be reminded of that, even now, that someone, somewhere, was thinking of you. February 17th, 1991. Dear Justin, thank you very, very much for your letter. I was quite happy to hear from a fellow American. I'm sorry it took so long for me to write you back, but I've been a little busy. You see, Saddam's soldiers are making me work a little harder these days than I would like to. Also, the mail takes a while to get out to us. I understand you have two birds. Larry and Claudia. When I was in school, I used to raise pigeons. Justin, I hope you can understand that no one wants war, especially not soldiers. It's sort of like the firemen. No one wants their house to catch on fire, but you want the firemen to be there if it does. So we hope for and work for, pray for peace, but prepare for war. It gets cold at night this time of year, and it does rain sometimes. But for the most part, it's just flat and sandy with a few rocks. Well, Justin, I've got to go. Listen to your parents and do your best in school. And take care, your friend, Ray. Justin, how are you, man? It's been a long time. I'm doing well. It's been a long time, yeah. Wow. <laughs> I think uh, since any of this technology would have even made this possible, right? Um, you know, back when uh, Pen Pal was all we had. So uh, it's pretty cool. Justin is no longer that nine-year-old boy riding a soldier in the desert. <laughs> Neither of us are the same people we were when those letters were exchanged 30 years ago. When I received your email, it probably didn't take me 30 seconds to immediately remember <laughs> who you were. I was absolutely overwhelmed. What made you decide to reach out, man? What brought you to that point? 
rediscovering the letter, we still had it and kind of rereading it, the way that you were able to express a really complicated thing like war to an eight-year-old, it really struck me. And I thought, maybe this guy's out there somewhere. It'd be cool to reconnect with him. So then I, I just Google Ray Christian. And here's this profile of this amazing person who's had all these experiences. And he's a master storyteller. And I'm like, I think this is the guy. And I read in one of your bios that you discussed when you were young and you raised pigeons. In one of the little bios on the internet, it mentioned that. And I was like, he said that in the letter. This is the guy. The improbability that, one, that the first letter got to somebody in the first place. Second, that you actually had the time and the wherewithal and the interest and to send it back, that it was so well-written. And the, the person that sent me a letter back is somebody with the natural gift of communication and storytelling. And the fact that it made it back to me and that we held on to it uh, for, for so long is... Yeah, improbability is the word that just kind of sticks into my head. I've reflected fondly on this letter for decades. And to know what this kid who wrote me went on to accomplish, a master's in mechanical engineering, now working in the aerospace industry with a happy and healthy family. We both ended up in a space in life where he was comfortable enough to reach out and I was in a place where I could be found. It was beyond amazing. Now I just get to be, I just get to be a dad, you know? I get to pour all that energy and emotion into raising my daughter uh, and, you know, just having a good life here personally, getting to travel and do things like that. Uh, it's um, getting to send random emails to soldiers I wrote 30 years ago. Um, <laughs> what else could you ask for? And then you answered it. <laughs> Having a family, man, falling in love and having a partner and being a dad. I do think that gratitude is a pretty big weapon. You have a, a beautiful perspective on it. It's what I would want for my own kids. So I, I, I'm assuming that your parents must be very proud of you. They tell me that. Believe it, don't be dismissing it like my kids do. Justin and I talked about our families, work, dreams, and the childhood details we both shared. As two men who both used to be little children, trying to understand the world by writing letters to adults. What a lovely gift Justin gave me. I should open my inbox more often. You have just finished another episode of What's Ray Saying. This podcast was created, hosted, and written by Ray Christian and was recorded in the great state of North Carolina. Mark Pagan is the senior producer. Jonathan Cabral is the associate producer. Story editing by Mark Pagan with development support from The Moth. Sound design by Rebecca Seidel. Photos for the show come from Samantha J. Massey. Original music comes from our son, R.J. Christian, with additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. What's Ray saying is derived from Ray's personal life, thoughts, and research. His views, opinions, and perceptions of the world and history are completely his own. 
But hey, get in touch if you want to debate. Ray builds this podcast with mountain spring water, deep fried fat back, sunshine, and crackling bread. In turn, he enjoys the love and appreciation you give in the form of comments and five-star reviews in Apple Podcasts and Spotify. To find out more about What's Ray Saying, head to Facebook and Twitter at What's Ray Saying or our website, whatsraysaying.com. This series is supported by PRX, The Moth, and listeners just like you. If you would like to translate your enjoyment and support into dollars, go to whatsraysaying.com and click on Donate. I'm Tiffany Christian, the woman who had his babies and finds his keys, saying goodbye to you from our magical home in Boone, North Carolina. Y'all take care, and we'll be saying hey again soon in the next episode of What's Ray Saying.